This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change, it's a podcast about seeking moral high ground, and it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, and if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. This is the last episode for 2021, and it features an interview with Scott Okamoto, who I'm really thrilled to talk to on this show. I was able to meet Scott over Twitter over the last few years, and it was great to talk to him in this venue and learn a bit more about his own experiences. He grew up within evangelicalism and then uh, ended up teaching at a Christian college as a specific for quite a while. What's interesting about his story is that he did not have to sign an NDA or anything like that when his tenure at APU came to a close, which is not the case for a lot of professors at Christian colleges. They often are subject to NDAs and can't speak openly about their experiences. That is not the case for Scott, and he will be working on a book uh, to detail his own experiences within that environment both and i'm sure that's going to be a fascinating book this conversation uh, really covers the gamut from music to christian college to everything in between also including some interesting insight into what it's like to be a faculty member that is affirming of queer students in a an administration that does not does not some very interesting insights there and i can't wait for you to hear it now i also want to take this moment to say thank you to all of you who've listened to the show over the last five years 2021 has been such an interesting and significant year of course in the background of everything has been the ongoing pandemic that has completely upended our lives throughout the world but when it comes to this show and the sort of things that that we've been covering for the last few years now, I am very grateful for what has been accomplished so far. In 2021, I helped to create the Irreverent Media Group and get that started. I've also uh, had the chance to be on TV to talk about some of this on MSNBC, as well as secure a book deal. Uh, And I'm actively working on that manuscript right now as well. And I'm just so thankful for all of that. And thank you to all of you for listening to the show and listening to the interviews that I post here. It's been such a great opportunity and it's been incredible to see the sort of response, both from people who value these types of conversations and how they proliferated across 
all number of shows on on what your favorite podcast app as well as on YouTube or elsewhere or Instagram and TikTok. It's been incredible to see the ways in which people have been able to control their own story and speak back and respond to those within evangelicalism that we now see are trying to control the narrative. And as I've said elsewhere and written elsewhere, we've reached the end of that white evangelical hegemony of that control over this narrative. And that is so incredibly exciting. Wherever you are in your particular walk, wherever you, and that's a very Christianese sort of thing to say, but wherever you are in your own personal journey, again, very religious language there. I hope that this content, that these interviews have helped in some small way. I hope that you also will enjoy some of this time near the end of the year to rest and to stay safe as the Omicron variant continues to make things so strange and difficult again. Thank you so much for listening so far. You can always find me online at PR Chastain on Twitter. I also run the Post Evangelical Post, which can now be found at postevangelicalpost.com. If you want to directly support my work, you can do so at uh, varying levels. I've now made it possible to support the show via Substack's coupon feature. You can support the show directly at $4, $6, or $8 a month. That is all accessible at postevangelicalpost.com. Signing up gets you access to ad-free podcasts, as well as paid posts to the Post Evangelical Post and access to the Discord there as well. Thank you so much for listening. Let's get to this interview with Scott Okamoto. Hello and welcome back to Exvangelical. My guest today is Scott Okamoto. He is a musician, a writer, a former professor, and host of the upcoming podcast, Chapel Probation. Scott, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. This is a, it's an honor to be on. Now that I'm on this podcast, I have to conf- <laughs> I have a confession. Sure. So around 2017, no, 2018, mm-hmm. I was convinced I invented the term exvangelical because I was writing this book that I'm, work- that I'm trying to get published right now. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, that's like exvangelical. I, that's, that's genius. So I, I, I actually wrote it down and yeah, no, then I looked it up. It was like, oh, there's this guy, Blake Chastain. He's been doing this for a while now. And I wasn't, I had only started publishing in July of 2016. So I hadn't been doing it for publicly for that long. But the Facebook group already had like 2,500 people on it. So it's like, oh, wow. That that must've been like some of the early sort of expansion because, but anyways, I, if, and I'm sure that it's only that someone would have come up with it. I think the fact that it became known through the hashtag and that is the really the extent of the what I'm like comfortable saying I contributed to because someone would come up with it. <laughs> sure. But you did and not only did you come up with it first, but you know, I feel like your personality is the best, you know, representation 
for it too. So you have this oh. very, <laughs> yeah, you have this very welcoming and even keel persona. So it's, it's great. It's, well, thank you very much. I, I would have been I, way too much of a smart ass if I had come up with it. Uh, so, well, I would have just offended everybody and made everybody <laughs> mad. <laughs> well, we know each other through evangelical Twitter and and there's lots of different evangelical communities now in different on different platforms, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. And but we got to know each other through through Twitter and during those sort of early days it was, there was an ongoing joke that Chrissy Stroop, our mutual friend, yeah, was Magneto and I was Professor X. <laughs> oh heck yeah, I missed that and, joke. But that was between our two sort of personalities and the way in which um, we interact. (laughs) (laughs) But anyways, I thank you. Thank you for your kind words. I appreciate that. I like to always start our conversations on the show, just learning about where you grew up and what the initial sort of, what the initial sort of experiences you may have had with religion or why did evangelicalism in a broader sense, what that was like for you and and how you fit into those groups. Yeah, I was, so I was born on an army base in New Jersey, Fort Dix, New Jersey. My dad was serving his second stint, but his family's from here in Southern California. I'm in Pasadena Mm. now. My dad is actually from here in Pasadena, grew up, born and raised here in LA. Well, actually, no, I just, no, he was born right before the internment camps and they got sent out, which, oh, so yeah, he was born in LA. Um, so when my, the family resettled here in the seventies, uh, they weren't Christian. I, my dad was kind he grown up at a, like a local Japanese American Presbyterian church, mm-hmm. but he wasn't like super religious or anything. It was these damn neighbors who t- invited my parents to a Bible study fellowship and mm-hmm. That was it. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> they were all in. Because when you're Japanese American and you come out of the camps, there's a real fear that that you're not American enough because your identity, your race, your identity got you stuck in behind barbed wire and all your stuff taken away. So the Jap, a lot of the Japanese Americans who came out of that experience, especially my parents' generation, were really looking for ways to prove their patriotism and their Americanness, lest it, you know, it happened again. My parents went to college, my dad became a dentist. And so, yeah, they were ripe for the picking. Yeah. Come to this Christian, you know, Bible study fellowship, which was pretty intense. You know, they were always doing like their homework and uh, it looked really boring to me as mm. a small child, but suddenly we're going to church, which is cool as a kid. I started. I think I started going to Sunday school when I was in like second grade mm-hmm. and I loved it. I was, it's like you sing songs, you, know, you put a quarter in the plates, yeah. you have, you have a snack and, and everyone's nice. Yeah. They got me early. I don't know. My parents have no excuse. They should have known better. <laughs> but I was like, I was a, I was like a seven year old kid. So what did I know? And what was, what were, what was like the, the year? Because I know that I don't know a lot about say California mega church. It wasn't a mega church or was it part it of wasn't that yet. scene? It was on its way. Okay. <laughs> it was a larger church, pretty much all white, which would have appealed to my parents trying to fit in. 
And yeah, it, it was, a, I think there was probably a thousand people going there in, in 1977 wow. when we started. Mm. Um, yeah, it's that's like, a sizable it's a, church. It's a mega church now. And they dropped their denomination to become an evangelical church somewhere mm. in, in the late 80s, I think. Okay. So, so de yeah. facto Southern Baptist sort of evangelical independently yeah. operating evangelical megachurch. Yeah. It was yeah. a congregational church, which I, to this day, don't know what that means. I don't know if anyone really knows. <laughs> if, I don't even know if it exists yeah. anymore. I mean, yeah, there are, I think there's, a, that's another sort of gap in my American church history knowledge, but congregationalists, I think, have a similar sort of self-governance type of model. Yeah, yeah lots of committees. Is all I yeah. understood it to be. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you yeah. were there like as a kid, and and I, yeah, I I remember like a, a lot of like children's stuff is fun. Did they have like a sort of once you got a little older? Did they have youth group ministry stuff in place? Definitely, it was very well organized. In elementary school, you're singing "Jesus Loves Me," and it seems so awesome and. Then it gets serious when you get to like middle school or we called it junior high back in the day. Then it's like, how serious are you about your walk with God? Are you doing quiet <laughs> times? And I learned how to play the guitar just partly just so I could be on the worship team. Partly, well, it was, it was 50-50, Eddie Van Halen. I heard that and it just changed my world. And then, but also seeing people standing up and leading worship was just to me, to my like 11, 12 year old mind, the coolest thing. And I thought if I, oh, if I could do that, wow. So I got an acoustic guitar at age 11 and a chord book. And immediately I'm pretty musical. So I was just immediately like learning the songs and the chords for, for the songs. There's only three or four of them. Yeah. Like GC, DC. Uh, yeah, sort of. exactly. I know. <laughs> You used to do worship too, right? Yeah, I was a bass player. So I, I just played like one note four times yeah. each measure most of the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I play bass too. But, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. But you know, like it, it's, it, there's a prestige <laughs> in in the church world. If you're yes. on, if you play the worship team, you're, yes. you're cool, man. And if you're on a youth worship team, like you're, you're a model citizen. <laughs> oh. Yeah, yeah. As a young person, you have that, that, uh church cachet yeah church cred man church cred <laughs> not street cred church cred church cred we had that's it right we had yeah. it so your teen years were probably in the 80s or so was yeah. had so i know like people i'm a little bit younger than you but you know i had so like people in the elder millennial space like me had the josh harris style purity culture stuff that was in the air was that were there any other sort of manifestations of that i know that i think it's like elizabeth elliott's book was big in some circles was that something that was present yeah there weren't as many of the celebrity writer types i remember there's a guy named mike warnke who wrote a book all about how he joined the satanic church and i think that was his name and he had this crazy book about how he ascended in the satanic church to be like a high priest and he was telling all these crazy stories and man that shit really messed up our heads it scared us to death and then oh it's but, a, like satanic panic style 
Yeah, right. because he, he was in it. And then it turned out, and I think in the 90s, he admitted he made it all up. And I was already on my way to deconstructing by then, but it was just like, ah, that makes sense because that book was nuts. But you know, when you're all in and you're a, a, a youth, you, yeah. know, you believe that stuff. Oh, oh This Present Darkness came out uh, when I was in high school. Okay. The, fir the first book. And that really messed with my head. I was, I'm so embarrassed to be saying this. I, I was seeing no, like I, angels and demons everywhere. I was just. No, I, it teaches you to be paranoid and expect spiritual warfare to be, you know, taking place around every corner. Yeah. Cause that's how the book portrays it. And, and then you, as I got older and learned more theology and stuff, it was like, wow, there's really no biblical basis for any of this. <laughs> He spoke at my college convocate or convocation. So he was the person. Yeah. He gave the speech. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, he, and he wrote like darker stuff in the nineties. It was like, um, well, he wrote, yeah, he wrote, uh, piercing the darkness, which was, yeah. the, it was like the this, sequel. To... Yeah. And then I think he, he went to some weird places. It has much of his, his convocation was about like how he was drawn to monsters as a kid. I think there's another all alternate universe. Frank Breddy is just <laughs> more in like the Stephen King vein and not like fundamentalist, yeah, yeah. a spiritual and warfare type stuff. Cause some of his, I, I, it was 20 years ago, but the language, I have impressions of it being like engaging or arresting hmm. to read, but. Yeah, maybe there's an alternate universe version of Peretti that's that's a little more chill. <laughs> yeah, he was in a book. There's a really funny book called Rapture Ready, where a, this guy, he's, I think he's Jewish, is just amazed at evangelical culture. This is from like the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And he reads this present darkness and, and he, he tracks down Peretti and asks him like, it's like, do you, don't, do you think it was how it was lame of you to portray liberal journalists as demon infested people do you see how that might be a negative force in society and he <laughs> and he kind of agreed at least in this book he backed off of that and said yeah that wasn't cool so the, all of the college professors and journalists had like demons on their heads with their claws sunk into their skull as if to say if you're liberal you're controlled by demons and mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, yeah, that probably wasn't fair. Yeah. During the during that sort of period of, of like adolescence and, and college, did you end up selecting like a Christian college? Because I do know that they're part of your story is you do end up teaching at a, at a Christian college. I don't want to skip ahead to that just yet. <laughs> so what were those interval periods between youth group guitar playing Scott and yeah. college prof. <laughs> well, okay. So I was so hardcore that I didn't want to go to a Christian college. I wanted to go and duke it out with the evil devil infested liberals in college. And that, so I went to U UC San Diego, which is a state school here in California, mm -hmm. a very science oriented. Um, we ha I had Nobel laureates as professors, but it was in college and I, I did intervarsity Christian fellowship which is also embarrassing to talk about. And I led worship there and did all the Bible study leader. And, and I forget what the name of it is. I was in charge of UC San Diego's broken up and was broken up into five colleges. And I was like in charge of 
my college at one point, running all the Bible studies and just, yeah, I was, I was doing it, man. I was, mm -hmm. I had all the cred, I had all the Christian cred. And <laughs> there's a, there's this thing where like, you feel like you're really doing God's work when you're at a secular school, a big secular school, because you go to classes mm -hmm. and your professors might be hostile to Christianity. And, and that was tough. A lot of seeds got planted just taking like <laughs> literature or, or history classes. These professors knew the Bible better than I did. I thought I knew it. Yeah. I thought I was going to go and kick some ass for Jesus in these secular schools. And they were bringing up points and passages in the Bible that I had never read. And I was like, oh shit, like, I don't really even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And then it was in college where uh, I met my, my now wife and we had friends who, who were gay and that was new for me. I never knew gay people in, in high school. And it's so embarrassing, but I, I was just shocked that they seemed like normal people because I was taught that they have this agenda that they're going to, they're trying to, I don't know, right. destroy your morality or something. And, exactly. Yeah. Right, spread their filthy ways to, and, and there's right. just these people and they became friends with them. And it was just, it was like the way this isn't how you're supposed to be. You're not supposed to be nice. <laughs> right. You're not supposed to be a generous human being that cares about me as a person too. And so we, we did a deep dive into what the Bible says about homosexuality and came to the conclusion that it doesn't say a whole lot. Yeah, it really doesn't. Yeah. And There's a few verses that are problematic, <laughs> but you know, we don't follow anything else in some of those books and some of those passages. Yeah. Yeah. But I, to your other point, like that, the way when you're in, a, when you're in the thick of evangelicalism and you're taught about the homosexual agenda. Right. And even when I remember I was in the thick of it too, when I was in high school, I worked, I, I went to youth group like five or something at church five days a week. I worked at a Christian bookstore. I listened to Christian radio and I remember like the Christian radio stations playing focus on the family every whatever time. And yeah. the amount of times they like said the homosexual agenda Yeah, when, once you meet, once you become friends with people beyond that and they are open with you and they tell you that they are gay or queer, like you realize that the agenda is like existing. <laughs> yeah. Dignity. <laughs> Dignity. Yeah. It's, that's not, it, that's so yeah. sinister. So who's got the agenda, but, but when you just ticked off some serious Christian cred there, you said, but you know, Christian bookstore, Christian radio. So let me flex a little bit here. I grew up <laughs> seven or eight houses down from James Dobson. Wow. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, so I, so the Dobsons, they've been in my house, they were friends with my parents. So like when earlier this year, when it came out, there was, uh, I think it was on Brad's podcast, Straight White American Jesus. They were talking mm -hmm. about how we have now discovered that his mentor was like this white supremacist, uh, white nationalist. It's like, oh man, that man was in my house. So I, oh I was, gosh. I went to my parents and like, did you know that your buddy, and they don't like him anymore, but. <laughs> you, he probably saw you as like the good minorities. So 
he could hang out with you. <laughs> he could <sighs> talk to you. I missed that fact. I didn't, I, if I did read it, I wasn't aware or, or it didn't stick with me, but that. Oh, the is, white nationalist thing? Yes. yes yeah. Yeah. So his mentor, and he wrote the guy's newsletter in the early seventies before Jeez. he did focus on the family. Yeah. Boom. <sighs> like, damn. Wow. Okay. So, so yeah. yeah okay. We're, we're done. We're done. Christian flexing. Then, yeah. <laughs> so you went to use. You went to UCSD, you like wanted to be, you know, a light bearer for the gospel or what, whatever it might yeah, be. As we were commanded. That's right. Yeah. I saw him going to Christian colleges, like some kind of cop out, like, oh, what are you hiding from, man? You got to get out there. You got to mix it up and, 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 yeah. and do it in the real world. It's just, <laughs> it's so dumb. It was like, whatever. No. It's like, <laughs> but you know. You keep mentioning it's embarrassing. And I think that's, at this point, we need to like just embrace the cringe and recognize that we've changed since. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll try to stop apologizing. Christian cred becomes Christian cringe, I guess. No, totally. But the great thing going, it didn't, the plan didn't work. I think I dug in hard my first couple of years and I felt like I was getting stronger as a Christian because... Mm -hmm. I was getting my ass kicked in classes. I had had secular classmates who knew the Bible better than I did. But I became an English lit major, and we had a really good new English department with some really great people. And these two professors mentored me. One was Dr. Lisa Lowe, who's like a preeminent Asian-American scholar. She, She was so great. She knew I was a dumb, conservative Christian, but I was trying to just be cool. and exists in this academic world. And the mm. other was a guy named Quincy Troop, who was an American Book Award-winning poet, and he was the biographer for Miles Day. He really took a liking to me and would invite me to his, his office to, to chat. He'd be on the phone with Miles Davis right before he died, and I could hear his little whispering voice. And it was just like, <laughs> wow, crazy. I'm like one degree from Miles Davis. Tony Morrison came and spoke to us because he's friends with her. So. While I was trying to hold on to this Christianity, I was being exposed to this amazing world of literature and, and the sciences. My, my girlfriend, now wife, was a biology major. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it already was shaping up in our minds where like, at least evangelical Christianity and all this amazing world of literature and, and science really don't jive. There's, yeah. Because I was, I was, I was convinced that all truth was God breathes. And I don't, I don't remember whose quote that was, but okay. You, you seek truth. Then if your faith is correct, then God is, is behind that truth, regardless of its source. So I, I took, I was thinking like, well, if I read Tony Morrison and my mind is blown, then that's God working in my mind. God is using Tony Morrison or Virginia Woolf or Mark Twain or all these writers that I was studying. But really those were just planting seeds of, yeah, no. That's not how it works. The churches I would would go to and the Christian circles I would be in wouldn't agree with what happened to Frank Peretti. What happened yeah. to Yeah. I'd love to hear more about that because I was also like I so in in my sort of academic track and for me like college was another was also a big turning point for me. The different the context for me was I went to college 
And I chose a Christian college because at the ripe old age of 17, I felt a call to ministry and was like, why not get started early? Yeah. And so, um, that's like, another Christian cred right there, man. <laughs> I should be playing Christian cred bingo right now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should, that, that's a definitely some, we need to make a card, a whole bunch of cards. <laughs> make a card. Yeah. Um, for, and so for me, I, I entered into college as a double major in history and biblical literature, but then by sophomore year, I had changed one, I, I ended up graduating with history and writing as my majors. And it was because one particular, I took a, a creative writing class and the professor encouraged me to pursue it. And I did. And like part of, for me, that was a very big part of expanding my own sort of worldview beyond. So I'm curious, you had these two really impactful, like mentor relationships with these professors were there any other texts or other things that they were exposing you to any anything that had a big impact on you and expanding your view of the world or of religion beyond what evangelicalism had given you yes but the sources were funny because uh like dr lisa Lowe opened me up to this whole Asian American identity that I had really not explored my, my whole life. As I mentioned earlier, my parents raised us to be good Americans and we're always reminding my brother and I have a younger brother uh, that we're, we're good Americans, just like everyone else. And we'll be proud that you're an American. And, and so I played baseball and, and, uh, and I was, I was a guitar player in a band and I did all these things that, that would make me fit into, to my community, my culture. It, I, I think as I look back, I had this like almost chip on my shoulder, like I'm going to out white people. <laughs> so I'm going to mm -hmm. lead the Bible study and, and I'm going to lead worship and I'm going to, going to play baseball and I'm going to go. F and I, I was raised fishing and hunting. I knew the outdoors better than all the white people at my school because it was a suburb school. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's funny looking back, like I was trying so hard to, to, yeah be what I thought was majority culture. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. having Dr. Lowe show me this heritage of Asian American stuff was very eye-opening and it, and it really mm -hmm. sent me, it was another seed of deconstruction, I think, because it realized right. it made me see that I was very white-minded, white-centric minded. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. The, studying the literature. And then of, of course, Quincy Troop was just the coolest guy in the world. It, he was like six, four with dreadlocks and, and he wore trench coats and sunglasses. And he, you could just hear like music play as he walked down and he would say, Hey, walk with me, Scott. And so we, I'd just go walking with him around the campus and we, he'd just be like telling me all about everything was a Miles Davis story. This one time <laughs> Miles Davis was saying to me and I thought just, wow, <laughs> I, I, I got so into jazz and I got so into in African-American uh, literature, I took several classes with him. It was just, yeah, it was just my, and this is the nineties, mind you, right? So this is the whole beginning of like diversity and political correctness w was new and we we're trying to figure it out. It's just, we we're just trying to, and I think I knew this was all separate from Christianity. InterVarsity was trying to do diversity and I have to give them credit. There were people in InterVarsity that were pushing diversity issues 
and there were people in InterVarsity that pushed me to explore being Asian American. It was just a very different way <laughs> of, mm. of doing compared to these cool professors that were like pushing me to explore identity of gender and, and sexuality and music and art that was just had so much more depth and like awesomeness <laughs> compared yeah. to what I was seeing in, in Christian circles. Yeah. On that note about the way in which the way in which that sort of focus on diversity was different in like the I, IVC or university circles where I know that just some, some recent writers have talked about how that period was all about like colorblind Christianity. Was that sort of what they were like in comparison to things that, cause I, in comparison to what these two professors were showing you and helping to empower you to explore other parts of your personal history, just that normalizing effect of white majority Christianity that that contrast is very interesting. Yeah. And I do have to give credit to, I guess the chapters of IVCF can be very different from college to college. Being on the West Coast, they were pretty progressive. Not, and they were already in 90, 1990, 91, 92, pushing back on the colorblind notion. Oh, okay. That's Al already deconstructing that as not the goal as being mm -hmm. un unhelpful and really at asking us to, to find the God honoring diversity of our individual races and to celebrate those. Mm. Um, there was this image of being in heaven and all the, the nations being representative and worshiping in their own language. And they would always yeah. be reminding us it's, it's not white people speaking English in, in heaven necessarily. It's going to be. I don't remember the verse, but it's going to be all nations and all languages. And, and right. that was like the end goal for them, that, that all the people would be equally held in, in regard in, in heaven. And so it was pretty progressive. I don't think they're that way anymore. <laughs> from from yeah. what I've heard from people who work at university, they've pulled back from a lot of that and they've gone more mainstream right-wing approaches right. to diversity yeah. yeah and maybe the reason for my for framing that follow-up question in that way is just because of that because of that recent history that's yeah, yeah informing that question but but even still the f the fact that they were doing it pretty well there was still a huge chasm between them and learning about jazz or learning about right. early asian american voices and the struggles that, that have yeah. come before it was the art that is created by all the, these two cultures or many cultures to me was just so, so far outshone all of the, anything that evangelical Christianity had done. Did you, was the book, so one of the books that was passed around worship circles and stuff was this book, The Heart of the Artist. Did you ever read that book? I never did. I've I heard of it. <clears throat> um, it's, it's on that in that sort of mode and it's supposed to be all about being a christian artist was that like their version of like the artist way or maybe that was like because i think the art it was probably published in the shadow of that for the christian market but i think it was like one of the willow creek 
sort of worship leaders or one of the other mega churches. Hmm. Anyways, we ostensibly read it for like our youth worship team stuff, but like it makes a that's, retreat for yeah. worship team. Yeah. <laughs> but it makes me think uh, of that, of how like when you try to shoehorn artistic expression into evangelicalism, like you, those sort of invisible boundaries be, you feel them. <laughs> if you're trying to create that art or if you're trying to enjoy it, like you can, you can feel the boundaries that are there in a really interesting way that, that if you're listening to Miles Davis, there's more depth there. <laughs> yeah. The training and depth in depth and artistry. I, I remember feeling really guilty. I went to a, a Rush, I was a big Rush fan because that's where all the nerds and geeks listened to in the eighties. And yeah. I went to my first Rush concert when I was like 14. And as soon as they came out and started playing the song called Spirit of Radio, I started crying, hearing, seeing that there's no internet. So you have no access to your heroes and to seeing them in person and my crappy seats way up in the ceiling, but even still seeing them and hearing them play these notes and sing these, these melodies. It moved me so much that I, I had a tear and I was embarrassed because as much as I loved worship and enjoyed worship, I never cried <laughs> in worship. I never had that uh, response. I saw other people crying, but I was just like, yeah, this is cool. Worship, man. Uh, I feel good. And the same thing happened in 87 when I saw U2 for the Joshua Tree Tour. As soon as the opening wow. notes started playing with the edge, playing the guitar on Streets Have No Name, I started, I had the same, like, oh, I'm choking up right and yeah it's like yeah damn why don't i have this during worship should be way more powerful <laughs> than these secular rock concerts but to me it, right. it wasn't i didn't i never had that yeah that response yeah yeah that's so funny those two bands are like i had one friend that was real in high school that that i looped into brink coming to youth group with me and those were his two bands so a <laughs> lot of russian russian u2 like, u2 the... was okay because they sold you two records at our christian bookstore so yeah i yeah. could get a, I, could, I didn't have to hide at church that i listened to you too it was always like well they're not singing about god necessarily but i hear he's a christian okay maybe right but yeah rushed that's just yeah Satan. Just can't, you can't have your 2112. Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> You're standing on a pentagram. What? <laughs> yeah. It was, that was hard. I had to totally, but we had, there was like an underground group of us at church that listened to Rush. And we would get all deep. And like these lyrics are really like philosophical. Like we, we were figuring out ways to meld our Christian belief with these very deep human the lyrics. <laughs> yeah. Neil Peer had some interesting ideas. I liked, I think between Tommy and 2112, those were like the first, my first introduction to like concept albums and stuff. Oh, uh, the who? Yeah. 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 So like those two, uh, were the first that I ever, and I love that idea. And once, uh, Pedro Lyon put out two concept albums and those were huge in my own. I just got projects. introduced to Pedro the Lion. I have to shout out a friend of mine who's also an ex-Christian and she was telling me about their, especially their early stuff was very deconstructy. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, definitely. 
Yeah. So, yeah. I got, I'm a late comer to them, but I'm, I'm really digging them. Yeah. And David, David Bazan is the, the lead singer of that group and also recorded under his own name for around 10 years. So like the, his discography is split across those two names and uh, some other things. But, I'm going to look that up. Cause that's, but, like I said, I'm, I'm like all in now with, with them. Like, yeah. Where was I? This is from 20 years ago. Some of it. Yeah. So there was this album. So I'm just going to geek out about Peter and Lion for a second. Do it. Um, geek out. <laughs> so there was basically there was a song called secrets of the easy yoke that came out in the late nineties, I, I think. And it was on one of his, it's, it's, a, I can't remember whether it's on the album. It's hard to find a friend or the only reason I feel secure. It was on one of those two albums and the chorus or the refrain is would someone please tell me the story of sinner's ransom from the fire i still have never seen you and sometimes i don't love you at all Oof. <laughs> and he would sing that song at concerts and he's really captivating life because he takes questions yeah he like when he's like tuning his guitar yeah they'll just take questions and talk to their talk to the crowd and it's disarming and intimate and really neat and i've never had that experience with another performer and he would field questions and like in many ways he made art for people that were questioning yeah. all of this stuff yeah definitely and, i and hear I, that already yeah and so he's played that role for a lot of people but like that I I remember one time you could tell someone asked him to sing that song live and like he had gone beyond his need for that song and he did it begrudgingly, but now he has some songs from his catalog that he doesn't play and he's open about it. And that's what I really love. Like later, the last sort of anecdote uh, about the way he performs live is he also has this song from a later album called Achilles Heel, which is fantastic. And uh, this song is called The Fleecing. And he, what's, how did the lyrics go? You know, I'm blanking on it now. I'm sorry. Right, we'll look it up. He, I will look up the, oh, I'm sorry. He goes, I can't say it. I feel it. I can't. And I can't sing it like I, and I can't feel like I sing it. But I'm just butchering it. So let yeah. me look up the show notes, man. You can put yeah, it. Pedro the yeah. Lion. The yeah. Now, I, um, like listening to you talk about it, it's, I'm new to them, but like that, what you're describing and the, the, the feeling you get from it is definitely how I feel about the, the bands in my formative years. Because yeah. I, I think you know, a lot of things go towards deconstruction. And to me, music is a huge one because. My parents were cool about music because they knew I played clarinet and they played guitar and, and they knew I was into the music not to go and worship the devil or sacrifice small animals. But it, it was, they weren't worried that the music I listened to was going to make me take drugs and have sex with wanton women. They knew that I was in it for the artistry. And so they let me listen to pretty much anything I wanted to. And it's, though, it's, it's that appreciation for the artistry of, of so many bands and some not so artistry, <laughs> uh, but I think it's that identity of looking for ways to express the angst of youth 
that so much of rock music does. And that gave me this outlet that was so valuable to, to me as an adult and that I, I go back to, and I hear some of these songs, even some of the Christian songs, but do you remember band Striper? Had yeah. I'd, hair metal band. Like, yeah. It was a hair was, metal band. Yeah. I was so into yeah. them for a little while. So yeah. embarrassing. I, um, I was super into Skillet. So, yeah. Okay. That came like, late. That came late. That came that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's your Striper. They're still kicking it. They actually are like, did you know Christian metal is like the only sort of metal that's invested in or yeah. a lot of metal fans yeah. listen to Christian metal because they're the right. only. I know. I, I, I was blown away <laughs> hearing like millennials and uh, uh, Gen Zers talking about their love of metal. And they, they mentioned these Christian bands. I'm like, wait, it's not a Christian band. It's like, yeah, but they rock. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's they, yeah. So I, okay. I just to loop back to the fleecing. Thank you for just the chorus goes, I could buy you a drink. I could tell you all about it. I could tell you why I doubt it and why I still believe. And that's, that is the, like one of the refrains, but later on he re-recorded it so that I could buy you a drink, could tell you all about it, tell you why I doubt it and why I don't believe. Yeah. And the way in which he invited pe- people into that, into that sort of process of his changing orientation yeah. and belief is really powerful but anyways i we can talk off air about exploring this we'll we'll have a different (laughs) podcast music talk with no no but so i in that respect first corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth and this podcast is just that here at the speaking in church podcast we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. I I love that sort of topic of how different art can just really make it make your world grow your perspective on the world in a really powerful way i don't i'm this may be a clumsy segue but you become a you later on become a professor and one of your tasks is to is to set curriculums and syllabi and all that sort of stuff and expose people, your students to that sort of art and instruct them too. Yeah. Uh, and you did that in a Christian context, a uh, Christian school context. So ironic. So what, I mean, what did that part of your particular experience look like? Cause I, I know you, you have a podcast coming up that's about that too. So <laughs> yeah. And a book all and about a book. It. Yeah. So, yeah. But yeah, it, real quickly, I, I, I got a master's in writing and I was doing journalism and freelancing. I took a teaching writing class in my grad school and I really liked it. The idea of sitting in a room and talking about people's thoughts and how to express them. So I started teaching at community college here in Southern California, like just basic freshman comp stuff. And then a friend of the family said, Hey, they're hiring at APU. And I laughed. APU is a joke of the school. It was a, if you can believe it in the eighties, APU was known as like a Christian party school, whatever the hell that means. 
Um, oh, they, yeah, they exist. There's a sliding scale of strictness and stuff. So. Yeah, yeah. So they were, they, that's why to this day, they still fight this reputation of like being, are they even Christian? Because they allow dancing. <laughs> they allow dancing. <laughs> they and, allow yeah. boys to go in girls' dorms at certain hours. So they're seen as the liberal school, but there's nothing liberal remotely about it. So what else, I was like, okay, well, it's a job. I'll apply. And I knew how to speak Christianese still. I was already pretty far along in deconstruction. I was, I knew I didn't want to be evangelical anymore. My family was, J Jerry and I were going to an Episcopal church, mm -hmm. I think, or we, we did shortly after I started working there. And I figured, well, I'll teach a couple of classes and just get it on my resume and focus on the community college. But they kept promoting me at APN. And so <laughs> I'm deconstructing like mad now. Cause I'm thinking, well, if, if I teach at a Christian school, Maybe I'll find my footing again in Christianity. Maybe I'll, because I felt like I was just sliding so fast that the, the Bible wasn't making sense. And I didn't like most of the people, the churches I went to and the politics were, were so far away from mine. Well, a flagship evangelical university with scholars and stuff. No, no, it was all just a big Sunday school, mostly. So that didn't help. In fact, that might've accelerated my deconstruction being there. So I, the book that I'm writing is about <laughs> waking up and realizing, oh shit, I don't believe in this at all anymore. And here I am now like almost full-time teaching and I'm a popular professor. People or students are lining up to take my class and get into the, because I was teaching like a progressive version of Christianity because they want you to do faith integration. So yeah. I'm teaching freshman comp, it's an accredited school and I'm doing that. And some of the best criticisms I got were, you know, Professor Okamoto should be teaching at UCLA, not APU, because I focused on sentences and, and, and <laughs> ar argumentation. And right. when I started teaching literature, I just taught literature. We didn't read Christian literature. We read <laughs> from the yeah. Norton Anthology. Some students didn't like that. Most did. I got along great with all my students, 99%. That 1% made it tough, though. They thought I was Satan incarnate. Yeah. There was a lot sure. of racial components, too. So I, I started writing this book about the experience and all the racism and homophobia and sexism and hatred of poor people. <laughs> Prosperity gospel is huge at these evangelical schools. Your riches is like your fruit of the spirit now. It was hard, but... When I did make peace with the fact that I didn't believe, I stayed there knowing that I could still help them be better Christians, I felt. Even though I didn't believe in Christianity anymore, but I felt like I knew the Bible pretty well at this point. And, I, and if we actually look at what Jesus said, yeah, I can apply that to creative writing or to composition or how you yeah. read literature. Right. And it, it was easy. And yeah, so I was there for 15 years. Wow, what, what was supposed to be a semester or two. Wow. Yeah. So I am curious just from a, from the standpoint that you are um, able to talk freely about it. And just because I do know that some folks who exit those institutions are restricted through NDAs and other things. That's... Yeah, sign nothing. They just fired my ass. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a funny story. They were going to fire me, but I talked my way back into the job. Because I teach argumentation and <laughs> I argued my way back. And then I came home and I told my wife, yeah, they fired me, but then I argued my way back. And she was like, 
why on <laughs> earth would you want to stay there? And I was like, oh shit, you're right. I don't want, I, by that point, I had been five years planning my exit. It was just like, I guess, yeah, I guess that's it. The only reason I stayed longer after they started to demote me once I got mixed up and my name got associated with the underground LGBTQ group mm. that I was the unofficial faculty advisor for. Once my name got associated with that, they wanted me out, but they couldn't, they didn't have grounds for firing me because I had very high student evaluations and I was serving on, you know, different committees and, and I was running a lot of things in the multi-ethnic programs. I was the only faculty actively involved. So they couldn't fire me, but they wanted to, and they kept, they just demoted me until, yeah, I was back to mm -hmm. just an adjunct at the end. I'm sorry. That's. Yeah, I mean, it was that's, fun. That's it, 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 yeah, it did suck, but I got to tell you, it, it is when you grow up as a good Christian kid and suddenly you find yourself as the evil, dangerous person, it's fun. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do have demons in my with yeah. claws in my brain. I walk around, <laughs> yeah, fear me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. I in my classes I did it, but you know some of the other faculty hated me because uh, there's there's a racial component too, and I talk about this in the book. They they expect Asian American men to be happy and hard workers and agree with everything. Just and I wasn't that guy. I was like the one like making snide remarks if you said something dumb, and that does not fly well with certain white people that expect me to be more respectful and um, other white professors would say, I said, I say the same things you do and I don't get in trouble. I'm like, yeah, I get in trouble all the time. Get student complaints and letters and calls to the president of the school. And yeah, so it just, I just embraced being to certain people, the bad guy, but my students all, we got along great. We, they saw me as like a wonderful example of, of Christianity. So, yeah. Yeah. So what about the, what's, what about the podcast? It's called Chapel Probation. You're yeah. working on, you're working on this. This is, it's not out yet, but alongside yeah. the book, you're also dipping your toes in, into the podcast world, which is exciting. Cause <laughs> I'm the only one I know that doesn't have a podcast. So I, <laughs> I was feeling left out. Um, yeah, I realized like a lot of the stories I tell in the book were just so far out there. When I tell my friends that didn't grow up in evangelical Christianity, they're, they're like, no way that didn't, did that really happen? And so I'm friends a lot of, with a lot of former students and former faculty who can corroborate. And in fact, they even have crazier stories. And so I thought <laughs> I need to bring them in to back me up and then, well, I'll do a podcast. And then I, I contacted a whole bunch of people on social media. Does anyone want to tell their stories from APU? And man, I got, you know, immediately 20 people within half an hour were messaging me with the stories. So I created the secret Facebook group and I started to curate like how I want this to go. And yeah, it's gonna, it's gonna be pretty wild. That's the, awesome. The stories. In fact, I think for so many people outside of APU who reached out to me too and wanted to tell their stories of like Biola and Wheaton and Liberty. So mm -hmm. if I get to a season two, yeah, I would love to have like you and Brad on to, to talk about. You yeah, know, your... I can tell my crazy yeah. Wesleyan May term listening to two chapel tapes at once. <laughs> story. Yeah, no, you beat Brad's story. He, actually, Brad went to APU. I should have him on. 
He was there yeah. like a little bit when I was there even as a student. And yeah, everybody's got, if you've gone to a school that requires chapel, there's a good chance you have at least one story about something. Oh, yeah. It's um, a lot of chapels to fill. So you got these sometimes crazy people speaking and saying some pretty wild stuff. Yeah. I, um, there was one, one, one just funny anecdote. I remember we had a one year where the worship like director, like she was, the person was, a, I, I don't know if it was, I can't remember if it was interim or a full position, whatever. It was the faculty person in charge of chapel that year. And one time they stood up and accidentally said, come and worship me. <laughs> Whoa, Freudian slip. <laughs> Which was uh, out of all of the, out of all of the like people that were in that position, they were the best. So it was just a funny little I think, moment. I think you're but... supposed to stone that person if I read the Bible correctly. <laughs> the you sure. guys did not, you were not, you did not respond biblically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's a great angle for a podcast because yeah, there, like there are so many Christian colleges and they vary so much. Like I, I went to Indiana Wesleyan and we were so jealous of Taylor, which was like Taylor university was half, like half an hour down the road in another small town in Indiana. And they had very minimal chapel requirements. It was only oh. two days a week. Ours was three days a week. Yeah, I think most are three. Yeah. And and it was just, it just sounded like a dream. So anytime <laughs> you like talk to. <laughs> Wait, so, and, what, but aren't there people at, at Indiana Westland and be like, oh, they're not as Christian as we are. We, we do three days a week and they only oh, do two. Yeah. You're always like comparing notes and doing things that Jesus said not to do of, yeah. of don't pray in front of people and right. don't do all those things and don't save um, money. Anyways. Yeah. Like we, we had stricter rules. Like they we had rules around, like you couldn't watch rated R movies. They could watch rated right. R movies. They could dance. Oh, so they're like the APU of, of, of Indiana, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Like them and Anderson university. And then you had more, you had more like strict Christian colleges like Indiana Wesleyan and there were, there are, there are a handful of other ones, but like, we'd have to go to Calvin college all the way up in Michigan for a good concert. Like they like would a, like get, a big Christian band concert, like a, even secular bands. Like they would book oh. legit, legit, like traveling shows. Yeah. It's so. such a small world that like Christian colleges and it, APU is seen as in some circles, it's seen as like barely Christian, but it's mm -hmm. fully evangelical. They're all in. It's, it's super conservative. Just the fact that they allowed dancing puts them into another micro category of, of evangelical universities. Right. They allow students can drink if they're of age off campus. Um, wow. They just yeah. allowed faculty to drink when I was there around 2010. That was mm -hmm. new before we were supposed to say we didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, that, that's always like something that you have to compare notes on to Indiana Wesleyan from what are there were all these rules for on, on campus students, but then they had a major 
commuter students and satellite campuses. And that's where things got grayer. But it was definitely, if you're on campus, a full-time student. Yeah, you're, you're locked expectations. down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But even what you said about the existence of that underground LGBTQ group, I know like in recent years, like Aaron Green has been, has worked diligently like with the administration to try to get official recognition. Um, yeah. Ironically, that's what I got me out of the group. I helped start it with a, with a group of kids and then they all graduated and like the second or third generation of kids got it in their head. They wanted to come out to the school and be an official student org. And I was telling them, no, please don't do not do this. We have a good thing here. We, we can decide what we want the group to be. We can decide who comes to talk and the events that we put on. You give control to the school, it's going to kill it. It's going to, it's going to be a debate about whether your existence is okay. And mm -hmm. so they kicked me out. The one, there's one generation that booted me out. Well, they didn't boot me out, but they just stopped telling me when the meetings were because mm -hmm. I was old and cynical and out of touch. And so they came out to the school and they had meetings. And of course they all got in trouble. I didn't want to say, I told you, so I didn't, but ironically, that was when I started getting in trouble too, with the administration accusing me of leading the group. And I, was, I just laughed. I said, actually, I'm not in that group now. Yeah. So Aaron did great work because that was tough. It, people, your listeners can read all about if you type Haven APU into Google is it's a whole, mm -hmm. yeah, it's a whole and, thing. And I've had her on the show a couple of times. So you can also look into the archives of this show where she talks about her experience, but it's, yeah, it is. I'm sure that it, there are a lot of, there are a lot of goals and it's the goal I think should be to always push these people forward, these groups forward and challenging them in the way in which they don't affirm queer identities. But I, I also, but if the focus is like maintaining community for a group that's under siege or threatened. I also, but it seems like that's where you, where your perspective was coming from. Yeah. I just didn't want those kids to be hurt. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause they, it wasn't like the school was going to welcome them with open arms as is and, and go from there. It was going to be, it was going to be a debate Yeah, and I didn't want them to have to go through that, you know, debate the validity of their existence. So they ended up having to do that. And I made my peace with the group at the end of my time there. I, there was a, the next generation came in and they're like, what do we do now? Yeah. And yeah. of course, and I don't think the group even exists anymore. Yeah. I think it's, if it does, I, I don't want to know. Because <laughs> I know some of the people that were leading it from the staff and they, are, they were not what you would call affirming of LGBTQ Mm. issues and so yeah it's, it was bad it was bad yeah yeah that's well i'm sure that you'll get into at least some of that in your yeah book. in the podcast in the and book in the for sure in the book yeah and then i've got a couple of guests lined up for the podcast to talk yeah. about how i went down and i'm sure that one conversation can't capture all of the sort of idiosyncrasies of everything that, that goes into something like that just because we can't capture all, all that no, detail in, no. in one conversation. No, and you don't want to know all the stuff. It's so depressing. I felt yeah. so bad for those kids. Yeah. Yeah. But 
on that note, like the importance of those things. And that was not something that I, yeah, owning your cringe, like I, like I did, or owning whatever, I had no idea. Like when I was a college student, that was, I never, I, I can say that like the, those really harsh verses, the clobber verses and everything, they never sat right with me, but like, I never knew anyone, no one had like come out to me or that wasn't part of my college experience. But in the ensuing years, when I have learned about my classmates that were gay, are gay or queer or however they identify mm -hmm. during that time, I did learn through them and even I've actually learned through interviews, the students that like had attended before me that had the same professors, that there was a significant value in having faculty that they could confide in. Yeah. And, like, and, there, were, and there was a group of us at APU, but we were a pretty small group. Yeah. And I, as a faculty person, whether whether you and the group of, of student leaders agreed on the direction that's and what the next, the proper next steps are like, it's very good that you were able to be that person for them that they could approach. And so I don't, I do want to emphasize just how significant that sort of thing is. Um, oh yeah. Thanks. It, it, it was an honor to be able to, to do that. I have a blog post on my blog where I can, and when the Josh Harris thing came down and everyone was mad at him and rightly, my, my take was also, well, we're, we should all be sorry for the things that we said and did in the name of Christianity. And, and to me, I, there was a, there was a young woman who came out to me when I was in university and my response was so bad. I meant well, but I was just like, well, if you pray in a few You'll, I didn't say you'll be healed, but I said, you'll come back to whatever being straight and just watching her face just fall. And I don't think I ever spoke to her. That was a huge step in my deconstruction in that I, I knew as soon as the words came out, that was not the right thing to say. Um, mm -hmm. and so, yeah, I'll criticize Josh, Joshua Harris, but I'll start with myself too. I didn't write a book that sold 20 million copies and screwed up everyone's intimate lives. But I, I, I said terrible things in the name of my faith and I have to own it. And, and I'm, yeah. I'm haunted by that. And so when I, when I was being fired at APU for my involvement with the LGBTQ club, I was like, yeah, that's fair. That's yeah, that, that makes total sense. That would be my undoing. Yeah. But even, and I'm sorry, I said, but because I don't want people to think I, one of the things I, I think is just the way in which be, the way in which the internet changed us and the way we dialogue and stuff is us being able to, res, you know, responsibly recognize when we participated in harmful shit and also not expecting absolution, but also saying, I've recognized that, that my position has changed. And like, that doesn't change the people that I may have hurt in the past. Doesn't 
but I'm, I've learned from those mistakes and, and that's like the, that's the gritty shit of all these stupid blog posts about people deconstructing for, for street cat street cred cause data's hip and if these systems were legitimately righteous and, and good for people, then deconstruction wouldn't be necessary. It would be so painful. Like it's not right. hip. Yeah, no, it's not cool. Um, <laughs> because you, you can't win on either side. You obviously on the outs with your Christian friends and community, but to people that were never in it, they're just they're like, well, duh, they're not going to, they're not going to give you any necessarily props for it or they might, mm-hmm. but you know, it's, it doesn't make you cool in their eyes. It's just like, well, welcome to the human race. That's yeah. you're not, you're not part of the problem anymore. And the other thing that's hard is like the, the idea of personal growth and, and acceptance and forgiveness and all that other stuff, all that stuff is to use a negative connotation. It's tainted. Like, yeah. So even our own idea of like how we get past that or accept our involvement in shitty systems and shitty personal decisions, yeah, that's not easy. But uh, we got uh, a, a bit more heavy than that. <laughs> oh yeah, I know we ended in a dark place, man. So what happened to Christian cred bingo? Yeah, we, yeah. We went, I guess we, we took a dark turn somewhere back there. We had uh, a, de- a depressing row of. I guess that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what? I mean, we're recording this on the day that some of the first cases around this reproductive rights case that's in front of the Supreme Court. Like dark. it was, it was, it was a blue day, just seeing some of the stuff coming up. So it was, I don't know, part of it, and was maybe bound to happen. But it was. Let's try to bring up the end. End on a. A lighter note. You actually have a, you mentioned your blog. You have a blog post from, I think, March of this year, which is about sex and waffles and how it's, it's actually celebrates where you've been since you, since that chapter of your own, no longer believing, um, no longer believing in evangelicalism or in religion or what have you. And the, uh, I, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. I'll link to the blog and the show notes, but it's this post about how you've deepened your appreciation for other things. So let's actually, yeah, let's actually uh, close on that on you've moved on from being a professor at APU and all of that. Where have, where has your, where have you found that sort of sense of like flourishing? Oh yeah. So the, the post was, is it rather, it was something about sex and waffles beats church every day. <laughs> I got, I was on another friend's podcast and he called me out. He's like, you really have sex on Sunday? I'm like, okay, it happened like once. But you know, when you have, <laughs> when you had little kids, you have little kids, it's, it's not, they get up really early. So maybe twice, but it's the principle. <laughs> it's, it's, it could happen because if you're in church, it's not going to happen. So at least <laughs> now the waffles happened. So I'm good at making I live around the corner from a Roscoe's chicken and waffle here in Pasadena. Uh, and uh, I just love their waffles. And when we moved here like 25 years ago, I was like, I got to figure out how to make these waffles. So we've been perfecting like a buttermilk waffle recipe. And uh, early on in my kids, when the kids were little, 
we would put on like a James Brown record and just do these silly dances in the kitchen while we made waffles. And I just remember thinking, this is so much better than church. Even when I, I was still a Christian, I was like, let's ditch church today and not get the kids out of bed and dressed and out the door to, to at, by a certain time and get them checked into the, the daycare and the Sunday school classes and then go sit in church and then come back. Let's make waffles and dance to James Brown. And we, I've got these videos of just this. It was so much fun. There was a slight problem when my youngest in, he was in preschool, started to sing, get on the scene like a sex machine at preschool. But other than that, it was awesome. And, and the teachers, they thought it was hilarious, but yeah, I said, maybe <laughs> don't sing, get on the good foot or uh, there's so many other songs. Don't just don't sing that one. <laughs> my, I, I, I joked with you earlier, like a few Months ago, we were, we were chatting that my deconstruction mm -hmm. was pretty, pretty gentle compared to a lot of people's because I started planning my exit immediately as soon as I started working at APU. I don't know if I was, I knew I was planning, but I joined like an Asian American arts scene here in LA called the Tuesday Night Cafe. And they, the people I met there are today my chosen family. They support me and they, I had them come to teach my classes back in the day. They were all artists and creatives and I would, I would sneak them onto campus and they would come to my classes and they would come uh, perform for the Asian American club that we had. And so by the time I was fully out and finally out of APU, it didn't matter. I had my people and that's mm. what, so like on the Facebook group and on Twitter, I'm always encouraging people in a couple of blog posts, find your people. There's, you will always, you might mourn the loss of your church and Christian communities because that's deep. That's yeah. Yeah. For a lot of people, that's their whole lives, but there are, there, there are other people out there <laughs> right? Yeah. who will embrace you and take, and, and you will be part of them and they will be part of you. And yeah. So when my wife had cancer in 2015, she's, she's fine now. She had breast cancer. That was like my last Jedi test. I said, I didn't pray at all. I was tempted to, but I didn't. And I was fine because I had my friends and my family checking in on us and, and looking out for us. And then just knowing that they were thinking about us was just as powerful as someone saying that they're praying for us. Cause that's really what they're saying. A Christian is saying, I'm, you're on my mind. I care about you. So my way of showing that and helping this make the situation better is saying, I'll, I'm praying for you. It's fine. But so it's just someone saying, man, I, I heard about your wife and my it's a gut punch or my, it, it's, I'm just so worried about you. That helped mm -hmm. too. That helped just as much, if not yeah. more. Yeah. yeah. So I found my people and I found, and I started playing music again and, and I joined a few bands. <laughs> I'm this like nerdy old 40s, 50 something dad now, like playing with people who are in the 30s and 40s, but you know, I'm the old guy, <laughs> but it's yeah, find, we talked about music and music is great to, yeah. to do and hobbies. I'm a big fly fisherman. I, we take my wife and kids fishing and camping. There's just so much in this world that exists outside of necessarily a, a Christian upbringing that, yeah, I feel like I, if there is God, I, that, that he exists, he, she exists in these beautiful spaces of community and art and love and nature. Yeah. 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 I feel like I just as satisfied, if not, I feel more satisfied with my life now than I did. So 
Right. There is a happy yeah. place. That's, and that's great. And I, that's a great piece of, there's wisdom in that you like constructed a social network that wasn't dependent on evangelical circles or that's, that is what makes things being, makes things hard through there's even a term for being holy ghosted, right? I haven't heard that. That's good. Uh, so like of, yeah, of like just losing your community overnight. So the fact that you found these connections and these people that, that were that same sort of social support, we're social animals, even introverts need other people. Like, yeah, that's great. And that's such a, such good advice and i'm so glad to hear that that you have that and that that was part of your experience because and even uh, if you only so have vital. sex once on a sunday that's still <laughs> probably <laughs> more than the people going to church and it's a great blog blog and, post title yeah <laughs> <laughs> well if you get both on a sunday then yeah. that's a banner sunday yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> Scott, thanks so much for for talking to me about about your life, your projects. Where can people find you online? Where can they learn more about whatever you want to mention here? Oh yeah, so I'm on all the the socials. So because I have, I'm trying to publish this book. And congratulations on your book that will be thank, coming thank out. Thank you, thank you. Hope to be joining you soon. We should do a book tour. Yes. I'm just starting. I'm sending out the proposals next week. So because of that, my our, it all starts. our agent made me get on all the socials even more. So I'm on Instagram <laughs> um, yeah. and Twitter. Facebook, like my little curated space, but I'm happy to, to, to meet people there too. So yeah. Our Scott Okamoto is, I think most of them. Great. Um, yeah. I'll make but sure. It's so great to talk to you like this, man. I just, I'm a big fan of the, the thing, like I said, when I found out that I didn't invent the term, I started listening to your podcasts. And so <laughs> to, to, to think back a few years then to, to now the, I'm talking to you is just very cool. It's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. I thank you for, for talking to me. I appreciate it. And I'm always thankful that whether people find this podcast or another one that's in a similar space. The fact that these sorts of things exist now makes things a little bit brighter. You don't feel so alone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So thanks for, for sharing what you did tonight and, and yeah, thanks for, thanks for being here with me. Yeah, man. Let's talk about music more next time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast. And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.